30. I don't like rules. Part 5. How many times and in how many ways does Jesus say, what difference does it make if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? How many ways does he say, the last will be first? He just can't say it enough. It's everywhere in the parables and the miracles. There's Lazarus, the woman at the well, the Gerasene demoniac, the blind, the deaf, the man with the withered hand, the tax collector, the many lepers, the widow, the wedding guests, the salt of the earth. And he never, never says, you just have to turn back for a little while. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your soul. He means endurance in faith, in fidelity to God. A permanent turn is needed. Daily orientation is the ask. But believe it or not, it becomes less difficult the more you play the game of interior conversion. The magic happens one day when you no longer want to turn away. You want to remain turned and you completely forget about the old ways. This is not like endurance in a marathon or perseverance at work or dedication toward achievements or leadership in family life. This is endurance in turning toward God all the days right up to the last day, to the end of your life, to the final hour. Knowledge, money, and self-mastery do not give you any endurance for this task. They usually turn you the wrong way. 700 years ago, in Book 1 in the Imitation of Christ, the author says something that our modern ears don't want to hear since we hold knowledge so dearly today. As for knowledge, it comes natural to all of us to want it. But what can knowledge do for us without the fear of God? Give me a plain, unpretentious farmhand content to serve God. There is more to be made of him than of some conceited university professor who forgets that he has a soul to save because he is so busy watching the stars. To know yourself, that means feeling your own worthlessness, losing all taste for human praise. If my knowledge embraced the whole of creation, what good would it do me in God's sight? 700 years later, that same conclusion can be found. What good is all this knowledge if I can't answer the bigger questions about life itself? What good is all this knowledge if I were to come face to face with God? What good is Google if there's only how and no why? If I know everything about the world, what good is that knowledge to me if I am without meaning? What good is money if I, if I can only buy more stuff? In other words, what good does it do me to gain the whole world if I lose my soul in the process? There's no way to turn back while our eyes are glued to the phone and the computer and TV screens and our ears are only hearing voices from the current culture of disbelief. If you are hung up on politics or obsessed with gossip, you will remain turned away. You will be indifferent and probably starving for meaning while your bite closes down again and again on only air. How difficult it was for me to break away 
from the trance of modern distraction and vice. I think of the movie The Matrix, where the computer cursor types out to Neo at the beginning, The Matrix has you. It has us all. We believe we have the control, the power, that we are the rule makers of our own lives. But that's the trick. We are the controlled, the ruled, and the servants of a sad and depressed culture. We're stroking our egos with beer and porn and memes and videos, pretending that we're not desperate for something more. And as the old saying from Charles Baudelaire goes, and also from the movie The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. The only way to break free is to shatter the illusion that you have control, and that will free your head to turn. The only way to freedom is through obedience to God, and the only way to the kingdom of heaven is through the cross. If you are angry at Christians, as I once was, about a rule that they follow, you might want to ask them, why aren't they angry about the rules? How can religious people be so happy with so many rules? You can be assured that every Christian has vices and that there are rules that he probably wants to break. Without any mental strain at all, I can think of several rules right now that I like to break. There are temptations enough to satisfy even the most devout person. But instead of being angry about temptations and the rules, the convert does battle against them, knowing that the model that Christ provided is the way, the truth, and the life. This acceptance of the rules is similar to why basketball players and fans are happy with the game of basketball when it's played correctly within the framework that it is intended to be played. Without rules, a basketball court would be chaos. It is exactly the rules that allow something beautiful to occur. Consider this. Would you rather watch a badly refereed basketball brawl or a well-officiated basketball game? The second one, of course. And you'll enjoy the game more because you aren't thinking about the rules. No, you're enjoying the game because there is agreement on the rules. Where no rules exist, you have lawlessness. You have chaos and you have a mess. Where there are rules, you still get arguments, but you also get harmony. Without rules, you don't even get to have a game. How baffling it is to think that rules actually bring happiness. Why? Well, forgiveness, hence joy. It goes right back to the, the woman who was forgiven. She's forgiven, hence she's happy to follow the rules. Same with St. Therese of Lisieux saying they're just small inconveniences for what you get in return. With the joy, the rules are fine because those rules outlaw things that we humans have already tried, experienced that have already failed to fill our cup of life. And like St. Therese said, the rules are small inconveniences once you are drinking from the vine of Christian life. It's not cool to be obedient, not in America. But now, I really don't care what will make me cool for 40 or 80 years here on earth. I want to know what God finds worthy for eternity. And the answer is in the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. It's in the letters of Paul. 
It's in the lives of the saints. And it's in the Old Testament, too. Can't really understand Jesus without understanding the Old Testament and the Hebrews and all the amazing stories of their journey. I'm like the merchant in the parable who's found the pearl of great value. I am the one who finds the treasure in the field who in his joy sells all to get the field. There is nothing that can disprove that Jesus is what he said he was. He literally is the way, the truth, and the life. And I have to laugh when my former problems with literalism were resolved to the point that there are miraculous events in the Bible that that I now receive literally. And one of those literalisms that I believe is that no one comes through the Father except through Jesus. There is no study or syllogism or theory or axiom that can separate me from this pearl, even though many, many people are trying to do that in the modern world. Here's what we don't want to hear. The self must die to reach the goal. This is what keeps us from turning back to God. For a whole life, we're told to promote ourselves, to work on ourselves, to believe in ourselves. And then Jesus decides to tell us that the self must die. (laughs) If you find the pearl, you are strangely willing to let the self decrease and ideally disappear. The old saying of, he must increase, I must decrease, that's exactly what has to happen. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those are the words of Jesus. Once you find the pearl, the rest of the rules make perfect sense. And that is why Paul can say without batting an eye, it is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. His old self is dead and gone. Even his name, Saul, it's no more. Paul is reborn like a child. He has turned back to God and found new life. And nothing is the same. To cling to the self is the road to serfdom. To return like a child to faith is the road to freedom. And to honor God above the self is the key to breaking out of your prison cell And the key is already in your hand. The key is what you can use to break out of your eggshell and become something greater. We're trapped until we do that. To say yes to God, like Mary's consent to Gabriel, her great fiat, her yes, let it be done to me. To let God's will take precedence over your own. Thy will, not mine, be done, Lord. As Jesus said in the garden the night before he died on the cross, thy will be done. To be selfless and honest in prayer like Saint Therese in her little way. And most of all, to be like a child saying his or her nightly prayer, or looking upon a manger scene at Christmas, or gazing at the crucifix, at the wounds in Jesus' hands, feet, and side. And finally, to know without a doubt that God joined us here on earth as a helpless baby, weak, vulnerable, suffering like us, that he entered our world, he came into this world with us to share our pain in order to take it away. This is how you find your way back to belief and find the innocence that you lost.
You will never find it in a book of facts. Your job will never give it to you. Your partner or spouse won't deliver the fullness that you seek. Knowledge and status and politics will never come close to what you want. But as long as those things consume your thoughts and your time, they will distract you and keep you from ever receiving belief from experiencing the change. You will sit far away from the joy that your heart desires, bristling at God, in denial, secretly afraid that those parables and miracles might be true, clutching this world's pleasures close to you as if they have any value, and calling those who pray to the heavens fools. All of this keeps you away because you don't like certain rules, because you can't let go, because surrendering feels weak when it is the only act that truly requires strength. And in the end, you won't experience the joy because you are too afraid to be open, too angry about the rules, and at last alone because you never even attempted to play.